Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to be beginning in verse 22 and finish to the end of the chapter through verse 27. The title to our message this morning is The New Tree of Life for a New Creation. Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord." Your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, our hope, our desire, our longing this morning is that you would give us that sweet water to drink. That water that has been purified by the tree of life. That water that gives us life. That water that is our life. Grant us the Holy Spirit now that we may hear the voice of the Lord through the scripture. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Multiple times now in Exodus, we've seen that Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt is an act of recreation. Consider some of the parallels uh, between the creation of the old world in Genesis and the salvation of Israel in Exodus. So when God created the old world, he brought forth the cosmos out of the deep waters, and he divided them and made dry land, Genesis 1, 3. When God saved Israel, he brought her through the deep waters of the Red Sea by dividing it and enabling them to walk through on dry land, Exodus 14, 21 through 22. We've seen that. One part I missed last week was the singing. When God created the old world, it came in... To existence with the song of angels singing. 
Uh, Job 34 or 38, 4 through 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, that follows up on, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, we weren't here, but the angels were and they were singing. And this is paralleled by what happened at the Red Sea. When they were saved through the sea, what did Israel do? They sang. They sang so loud that they could be heard for miles. Creation and recreation are ushered in by song. This morning's passage follows that same pattern of creation and recreation. When God created Adam in the beginning, he brought him to a tree of life and he commanded him to listen to the voice of the Lord, Genesis 2, 9, 16, and 17. And in our passage this morning, when God is recreating the world in Israel, he brings them to a new tree of life a tree that heals the water, and then he commands them to listen to the voice of the Lord. Loved ones, this is precisely what we saw dramatized in the baptisms this morning. Uh, God is recreating Gavin and Penelope. They were brought to the tree of life, Jesus Christ, and in their vows, they promised to obey and listen to the voice of the Lord. And now, Now they are on this journey with us through the wilderness to the promised land. And the question that belongs to them and the question that belongs to us is this. What will we do when trouble comes our way like it did for Israel? What will we do when God tests our hearts? Will we murmur in unbelief like Israel did or... Will we turn to the Lord in prayer like Moses did? Will we run to Jehovah Rapha? That means the Lord, our healer. Or will we turn back to Egypt and our hearts and become cursed with those diseases? Or will we become those who are living springs of water for the nations? So here's our big idea this morning. Jesus Christ, the tree of life, heals all our bitter sin so that we would be a spring of living water for the nations. Let's look at our doctrine this morning. And in our passage, hopefully you'll notice that um, this section shows Israel uh, traveling at two particular destinations. The first one is to Mara from the Red Sea, verses 22 and 23. And then the second destination is to Elam from Mara in verse 27. So both of these destinations teach us something vital about God's plan for his people. So let's look at the first leg of this journey. Verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. All we need to do to get water is turn on the faucet. They were in the wilderness. This was a, this was a tremendous crisis. This was a crisis of crisis. Apart from a foreign army coming and destroying them, the next most dangerous thing to the Israelites is not having water. They would perish of dehydration. Whatever water they did have, by this time, their skins were uh, were dry. They had all of their livestock, all of their herds, all of their women, all of their children. 2.5 million plus creatures were in peril. Israel was staring at death in the face again. Now, this should be pretty familiar with us, shouldn't shouldn't it be? 
since the beginning of the book. Uh, they faced several crises. The, the book began with a crisis. They were enslaved by the Egyptians and then followed up with the next crisis, which is they, their, their children were murdered by the Egyptians and then followed up with um, being commanded to make bricks without straw. And then recently they were trapped by Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. And all of these crises, God delivered them and now they're facing a new one. That sound familiar at all? And this crisis is intensified in verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Marah. Try to imagine this scene. After three days of only seeing sand, they finally see a a spring out in the distance. They can tell because there's green vegetation around it. And they think to themselves, or, or perhaps they even say out loud, it's a spring, we're saved. They go down to the water and an older Hebrew walks down to test it, to see if the spring is safe to drink. He puts his hand in the water, lifts it out, he smells it, he tastes it, and then immediately he spits it out. His face turns sour and his eyes darken. And immediately the hearts of the Hebrews sink like a stone in their chest because they know what that meant. The water was bitter. It was probably brackish water, uh, salt water that had mixed from the Mediterranean with the tributaries in the wilderness. Uh, it was bitter, it was salty, it was undrinkable, it was poisonous for human consumption. Not like, you know, sometimes you, you turn on the tap water in, in Boise and it's a little chlorinated and you're like, ugh. No, that would have been fine. This was poison. And that's why this spring was named Mara, meaning bitter. It's the same word that Naomi takes for herself in the beginning of the book of Ruth. She said, don't call me Naomi. Her, her husband and her two sons died. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. So take that in. The Israelites are probably just a few hours away from dying of dehydration. They come across this spring, uh, the only spring they find in three days, and they discover that it's poison. How are they going to respond? Well, the first thing that we need to see about this crisis is that God designed it. This crisis was a test from God Almighty himself. Who led them to this place? It's not in the text, but the pillar of cloud was still leading them. In Exodus 13, it says, The Lord went before them by a pillar of cloud, and it did not depart from the, before the people. It was right there. Why would God lead them to a place where there was no water? And worse, why would he elevate their hopes when they arrived at Marah only to shatter them when they find out that that water was bitter? What is God doing? He's testing them. like he tests us. Look halfway through verse 25. It's at the paragraph break. 
There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. This whole journey through the wilderness was one long test. Keep your finger here and and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Here Moses gives a summary of the 40 years in one verse. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that, here's the purpose, he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, let's be clear here. Uh, God doesn't need to know what's in our hearts. He knows all things, the end from the beginning, but Israel needs to know what's in their hearts. These tests, these hardships shows what is in man's heart, not for God's sake, but for our sake. What was in Israel's heart? Turn back to Exodus 15. This is what's in their heart. This is how they respond. Verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now, children, boys and girls, this is a pretty easy question. What was in Israel's heart? Belief or unbelief? Unbelief. Unbelief. Do you think this was an honest question to Moses? Hey, where can we get some water? No, this was an attack. This was an accusation. Where are we going to get water, Moses? But really, they were grumbling against God because God is the one that led them to this place. Isn't it amazing how quickly the people of God can become Judas? How quickly uh, we can turn from singing to sinning. Three days earlier, they were singing so loud it could be heard for miles. And now they're grumbling to the Lord their God. One of the questions that I've received in this series that's been confusing is this, is that is Israel saved, regenerated at this point in time or not? (laughs) After the Red Sea deliverance, we, we read in chapter 14, verse 31, that they believed in the Lord. But we know elsewhere that this whole generation of Israelites perished in the wilderness because of unbelief. Uh, Paul, so they don't make it to the promised land. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 5, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And certainly this unbelief is on display here. So how do we reconcile that? Chapter 14, verse 31 says they believed. And these other places clearly show that God is judging them for their unbelief. Well, there were truly redeemed Israelites in this generation. But as a whole, the majority was still captive in unbelief. Think later to the Babylonian captivity. As a nation, God judged them covenantally, and they were judged in Babylon. And yet we know that in that judgment, there was a remnant. There was Jeremiah, there was Daniel, there was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So here in this generation of Jews, there were true believers, yet there were many who were still Egyptian in their heart. So how did Moses respond to their grumbling? Look at verse 25. 
And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. I read, read tree in, when I read the scripture. I did that on purpose. If you look at your ESV footnote, it says tree. And several English translations use the word tree here, KJV, NASB, LSB. Obviously, a log comes from a tree. I think that's without dispute. But the word tree in particular is meaningful from the very beginning of the Bible. Continuing in verse 25, he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. What's going on here? I did a lot of research with old Jewish commentaries, uh, the the Jewish commentaries that don't believe in the Messiah, and and just try to to fish out what type of fantastical stories they could get from this, because this is a strange event. I'm going to throw this stick in the water, and the water is going to become drinkable. What's going on? Well, God is using a sign. Now, God did, in fact, miraculously heal the water, and he instantly made it drinkable for Israel. But he could have done this without Moses, and he could have done this without a stick. But the gospel sign would have been missed. The type would have been lost. Brothers and sisters, the water stands for someone. The tree stands for someone. How do we know? Well, because verse 26 tells us. Look at verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give to his, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, here it is, then I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. The water in verse 25 is a sign of Israel in verse 26. The water was bitter in verse 25. I will save you from that disease in verse 26. If they obeyed the Lord, they would not become diseased like the waters of Marah, but they would be made sweet. Likewise, the tree in verse 25 is a sign of the Lord himself in verse 26. Who heals the waters? Jehovah Rapha. It's the Hebrew for the Lord, your healer. Just as the, the tree healed the water, the Lord heals his people. But why is this tree a sign of the Lord? Loved ones, a, a, a tree was a sign of the Lord from the very beginning of Scripture. God brought Adam into the garden, and what was in the middle of that garden of paradise? A tree of life. And this tree of life was a sacrament of that covenant that God made with man. It was a reward that Adam could eat if he obeyed, Genesis 2.16. If Adam obeyed, this tree would give everlasting life, Genesis 3.22-24. Later in Scripture, this tree reappears in the very first psalm as the archetypal righteous man. He shall be like a tree. In Proverbs, this tree of life reappears as the source of all wisdom and righteousness. Proverbs 3.18, 11.30, 13.12, And then at the end of the Bible, this tree reappears four times in the book of Revelation. Those who overcome the world by faith are promised to eat of this tree. Chapter 2, verse 7. The leaves of this tree heal the nations. Chapter 22, verse 2. 
Those who are washed have a right to this tree, chapter 22, verse 14. But those who reject the word will have the share of their tree taken away, chapter 22, verse 19. Dear congregation, what is the scripture teaching us about this tree of life? It's Jesus Christ himself. He's the tree. He's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Brings us to our doctrine, the first part of it this morning. Jesus Christ, the tree of life, heals all of our bitter sin. That's the wonderful story that these waters of Mara are telling. The gospel really is on every page. The waters of Mara were healed because the tree was cut down. God saved us from our sin by sending his son Christ into the world in order to be cut down. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Because Jesus died, he is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer. Jesus Christ is the great physician, not because he healed himself, but through his death, he healed us. By his wounds, we are healed. The waters of Marah were changed from bitter to sweet because that tree was cast into it. In other words, symbolically, the tree was united to the water. Loved ones, Christ did not merely die for our sins, as glorious as that is. He united himself to us. First, he came down and he put on human flesh. He joined himself with human nature, truly God, truly man, joined in one person, in our nature forever, not just at that point in history. The Son of God, truly God, truly man, is at the right hand of the Father right now. He's joined to our nature. And he joins to our nature at the moment of belief. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live by faith in the Son of God, I live for him because he loved me and gave himself for me. The tree is in the water. Christ is in the believer. That's why the water is sweet, loved ones. The only reason why your life is sweet is because Christ is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the scripture says. He's not in us metaphorically. He's in us mystically. He's not in us symbolically, but he's in us spiritually. First, Corinthians 6.17 says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We share of the same spirit as Jesus himself. What an amazing thought. We can stop right here and just meditate on that thought for the rest of the day that we share the same spirit as Jesus. The tree is in the water. Christ is in the believer. The sin has been removed, but the Savior remains. So that's the first part of our doctrine, that Jesus Christ, the tree of life, heals all our bitter sin. So then let's look then to our duty. And our first duty is just to consider the role that 
obedience plays in the life of the believer. What role does obedience play in the life of the believer? It is, in case you missed it, it's Reformation Month. Um, We celebrate this month the glorious Reformation that took place 500 years ago when God recovered the free grace of the gospel. The reformers, by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit, recovered the gospel from legalistic tyranny. Sola fide was the hinge upon which the Reformation turned. We are justified by faith alone through Christ alone plus nothing. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, that's how your sins can be forgiven. By not trusting in what you can do, but by trusting in what Christ has done for you on your behalf. If you call on his name, by faith alone, you can be saved. Sola fide. Sola fide changed the world and it shaped Western civilization as we know it. But there has been many perversions of this doctrine, sola fide, ever since. And one particular perversion is that once Christ saves us, our obedience to him is simply optional. In our passage, don't forget the flow of the story, okay? When the Passover lamb was slain, Israel experienced salvation typologically. When Pharaoh's army was slain at the Red Sea, it typologically represents all of our enemies being slain. And now as Israel enters the wilderness, as they're traveling towards the promised land, what does that typologically represent? Our sanctification are dying to sin, are growing in Christ. What does God require of us in our sanctification? Well, the answer is in verse 26. We must diligently listen to the voice of the Lord our God. We must do what is right in his eyes. We must give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. Verse 25 calls this a statute and a rule. One author says here that this is the very beginning of God's law giving through Moses. We're going to see that filled out specifically in, verse, in chapter 20. But this is the beginning of it. And what we need to see as Christians is that when Jesus Christ saved us, he did not free us from obedience to the law. That might sound like heresy to some people, right? He did not free us from obedience to the law. He freed us from the penalty of the law. Amen and hallelujah. The law can never, ever, ever condemn us again. But now we are required to obey God's law, not as a means to keep our salvation, not as a means to get resaved, but as a means of worship, as a means to show our thankfulness to God, as a means to live as God designed us to live. The law is not bondage to Christians. It's true freedom. Children, uh, boys and girls, um, consider this question by the late Jay Adams. He asks this. When is a train most free? 
When is a train most free? Is it free when it goes bouncing across the field, off the tracks, tumbling down the cliff? Is it free then? No, it's only free if the train is confined, if you will, to the track. Then it runs smoothly and efficiently because that's the way that it was its maker intended for it, for, for it to run. It needs to be on the track, structured by the track to run properly. You too need to be on the track. God's track is found where? In God's word, in his law. God, listen, dear congregation, God requires obedience from the Christian like a fish requires water. Like a bird requires wings, like a heart requires blood. God does not give us uh, law to be in bondage, but to set us free, to actually love him and love our neighbor the way that we, that we were designed to be. Why is the world out of control today? Isn't it precisely because of this? Because they hate God's law and they don't follow it. There's no such thing as blessing without obedience. So consider that carefully, dear believer. You you cannot expect God to bless you, to continue to heal you, as the end of verse 26 says, without obedience. Jesus was the most free man that ever lived, and he loved and lived by God's law. Obedience to God's law is not an enemy of our justification. It's the fruit of justification. Westminster Confession of Faith 16.2 says, Good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. So that brings us then to our, our second duty, is that we need to examine ourselves. Our obedience to God's law word is going to be tested in the wilderness. Um, This whole episode was a test, as verse 25 says. So, dear believer, how do you respond to the tests that God sends you? How did Israel respond? First, they grumbled. What tests is God giving you right now? Don't we so often find ourselves doing the same thing that Israel did? We grumble or murmur or complain about our circumstances. Loved ones, who led us into those circumstances? God did. Murmuring against circumstances is murmuring against God. Have you murmured lately? Oh, this text is so convicting, isn't it? It holds the mirror of God's law right up to our face, and it shows us this is us. Secondly, Israel began by asking the wrong question. The question that they asked is, where are we going to get water? That's the wrong question to begin with. That could be a second question. It's the wrong first question. The right question is, is will I trust the Lord? He has brought me this far. Is he going to fail me now? Loved ones, what question are you asking in your testing? 
as God is testing your obedience, are you asking these kind of questions? Where am I going to get money for that? How is my marriage going to be healed? Am I ever going to get healthy? How long is this depression going to last? No, the right question is, will I trust the Lord? He has brought me thus far. Will he fail me now? He's rescued me from the slavery of Egypt. He rescued me from the devil at the Red Sea. Will he fail me now? Third, we do have a positive example of how to respond to these tests. What did Moses do when he was tested? In verse 25, it says he cried out to the Lord. He prayed. He took his trouble directly to the Lord. And that's precisely what the scripture tells us to do. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, call upon me, pray to me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Unbelief responds to crises by grumbling and belief responds by prayer. But you might ask, why does our obedience even need to be tested? Why do we even have the wilderness? Why doesn't God just save us and then let's move on? Why do we have to be tested? The passage we read in Deuteronomy 8 gives us the answer. It says that he tests us that he might humble us. Another form of that word is that he might humiliate us, that he might bring us low. The testing of our faith, and this sounds counterintuitive, the testing of our faith helps us to see how wretched we actually are. Paul puts his testing on display in Romans 7. What did he conclude at the end of his test? What did he say? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? When God tests us, what we discover is that we are far more wicked than we could ever possibly imagine. And we discover how vast and unmeasured is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We discover that it's, if we're going to get through the wilderness, it's going to be God alone. If it depends on us on even a little bit, we're screwed. We're in trouble. We're lost. We'll die. We'll kill ourselves. We'll worship other gods. We'll run away. Our wretchedness drives us back to the grace of God again and again and again. This is why Paul said, after he denounced himself, he said, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He saw it. In these tests, God wants us to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That love surpasses knowledge. And with each test, we're getting a little bit more of that knowledge of the gospel. 
testing leads us to our humiliation. Humiliation leads us to a greater view of the grace of God. And that greater view of the grace of God is what heals us. But some testing leads to apostasy. That's the warning in our passage. God said that he would heal them if they would persevere in their faith. That's the end of verse 26. Some did not make it to the promised land because of unbelief. And Paul specifically points to this passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. And he says, these things took place, fellow believer, for us that we might not desire evil as they did. It's become a a sickening trend in evangelicalism today. There are many famous Ex-evangelicals, perhaps you've heard that term before. Those who have used to profess Christ, but they then deconstruct their faith. Names like Joshua Harris, Abraham Piper, Derek Webb, and others of the like. Just 10 years ago, these were authors of books, singers of bands, sons of famous pastors. These were tested and they failed. Of course, it's, it's right here at this moment to quote 1 John 2.19, which says, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. These ex-evangelicals did not lose their salvation. That's impossible. But they did have a profession of faith. And when God tested them, when God sought to humble them, to show them how wretched they really are, instead of turning to the grace of God and the forgiveness of Christ, instead of saying, yes, I am the chief of all sinners, they turned to other saviors that were not so demanding. When we come to Christ, he demands everything, not one scrap of pride, not one merit, not one crumb where we can say, yes, but I'm a little bit good. No, you're not. You're not good at all. But God is good. Christ is good. His grace abounds for you, dear believer. Loved ones, be warned. There have been ex-evangelicals in this church. Don't flatter yourself. Don't say things like, I'll be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. Yes, testing is painful. But... The end of that test is for us to see Jehovah Rapha, to see him for who he really is, that he is for us, that he's not against us, that he really will, he really will bear with every single one of your sins when you come to him and repent. He really will bear with all of your failings, though you have failed him 70 times seven times seven. He really will bear with you. Come to him, trust him, hope in him. Don't turn to other waters. Testing helps us to see that we are saved by grace alone and nothing else. It helps us to see that he who began a good work in us will see it completed to the day of Christ Jesus. Testing is a gift, loved ones. Helps us have a bigger gospel.
Let's look then at our delight. When Charles Spurgeon preached this text, he called it a missionary sermon. And there's good reason for that. Look at verse 27, and this is where we get the last part of our big idea. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So this is a a new landscape now. Uh, They find not one spring like at Mara, but 12, and they find not one tree, but they find 70 Palm trees. This was a mini paradise in the middle of the wilderness. And that's so how it is in our life. When we're, we're tested, we go through these really hard times. And then we come out the other side and we have this reprieve. We're like, glad that's over. That's this moment right here. No doubt their hearts leapt with joy and singing. Uh, though they murmured in unbelief, God did not repay them according to their iniquities, but instead he gave them joy and peace and abundant water and shade from the sun. But there's a deeper magic here, isn't there? I hope you see it. Remember, the waters represented Israel in this passage. And it's here, it's even clearer. How many springs are there? There's 12. How many tribes of Israel were there? How many apostles were there? This represented the church. The waters that were healed at Marah now became a living water for something else. What did they become a living water for? These 70 palm trees. Where do we first come across that number in the scripture? 70. Well, in Genesis 10. Uh, That's where the table of nations were listed. There were 70 nations in the world. And God healed Israel, those 12 springs, so that she could be living water for all the nations of the earth, those 70 palm trees. This theme is seen elsewhere in scripture. One author points out that Jesus followed this same pattern by sending out 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Dear congregation, this is precisely why God saved Israel. For his glory, uh, because he loved them. Uh, we We could list out all these reasons, but this is precisely why he saved them, so that she could fulfill God's covenant made with Abraham. What was the covenant made with Abraham? That he, that his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. Genesis 12, 3. Our God is a missionary God. He wants to give living water to the nations. Spurgeon says here, I may well liken the the world that liveth in darkness to this thirsty caravan gathered around Mara's well, where the water is too bitter to drink. The heathen know nothing of the healing tree, the tree cut down of old, that still has power to sweeten man's misery. So this is our charge, loved ones, from this passage, that we are to water the nations. We're to water the nations. Have have you not tasted that sweet water? Has not the tree of life, Jesus Christ, healed all of your diseases? Are you not in the sweetest of unions with him? 
Look to your neighbor. Look to your coworker. Look to your family member. Look to your friends who have not yet tasted Christ. What type of water are they drinking? They're drinking poison. The diseases of Israel still, of Egypt still rest on them. They're under this curse. But you have the sweetest water. You have the water that can quench the most thirsty soul. Jesus said in John 4, 14 through 15, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. That water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. Loved ones, you have an elixir. You have an elixir in you that can solve all crises. You can have an elixir that heals all wounds that you can give others peace with God and and eternal life through sharing that water. Will you give it to them? Will you give them Christ? Consider two additional motives to, to give the nation's water as we conclude. First, motive number one, you will have success. This picture in Elam of 12 springs watering 770 trees is not something that may happen, not something that might happen, something that would be really nice if it happened. Uh, It will happen. God bound himself by covenant. Genesis 12, 3, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The nations will be watered by the church. Secondly, their second motive is that when you give the sweet water of Christ to others, you yourself are watered. Haven't, haven't you? I, I don't know, loved ones, like, hopefully you're in a regular pattern of, of praying to God and asking for opportunities to evangelize. If not, pray today. Lord, give me an opportunity to evangelize. But the last time that you evangelized, what did you feel when that water was coming out of your mouth? Did your spirit not feel it? Did those roots of your soul not drink deeply? That's a, a scriptural principle here. Proverbs eleven twenty five: whoever brings blessing will be enriched and who, whoever waters another will himself be watered. Loved ones, sharing the gospel, when we share the gospel, it's often a greater blessing to us than to the one that we're sharing it with. Because you get to taste the sweetness of Christ again and again and again. As you speak those words of life, the peace of God is flowing from your lips. Eternal life is flowing from your lips. Mercy, forgiveness, union with Christ is flowing from your lips. So water the nations. Give them the living water that they so desperately need. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to do so today. Do it today. Pray this week. God, give me an opportunity this week to share this sweet water. Let's pray. Father, we pray to that end right now. And may any believer who agrees with this prayer, may you grant that it grant it to them, Lord, that we would have opportunities this week, that we would make opportunities, that we would see opportunities, that people would come to us and ask us, what is the reason for the hope that is within us? As we see them drinking bitter and poisonous water, Lord, may we walk in obedience to you and share this life that we have in Christ. 
We pray these things for your everlasting glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.